What's up, H12? How y'all doing tonight? I miss you guys so much. Listen, I am so excited that we are jumping into week three of Battlefield. Now, here's the deal. You know, if you've been in this series over the last couple weeks, you know we've been having this conversation around something that we all deal with, and that is conflict. And this is what I found to be true about conflict. Conflict comes from all different directions, like it's never oftentimes from the same source, although sometimes the same source has given us the conflict, but conflict comes all over the place and from all different directions. And sometimes when people deal with conflict, you see them go through the conflict, they get on the other side, and it seems like they got out unscathed. But then there's others and other times where you go through conflict and you get to the end of it and you feel like you're all still wrapped up in it. It actually reminds me of this, uh, this viral video that just came out from Planet Earth 2 that I want to share with you guys. Check it out. Snake's eyes aren't very good, but they can detect movement. So if the hatchling keeps its nerve, it may just avoid detection. Miraculous escape. Is that not insane? Oh man, I got chills. Anybody else got chills? All right, real talk. Who was pulling for the iguana? Raise your hand. Where are you at? Who's pulling for the snake? You're like, dude, just get that thing. All right, yeah, a few of y'all sick, weird people. Who couldn't watch it and you were like squeezing your friend too tight because you don't like. Yeah, all right, I feel you. <coughs> listen, listen. This is what I mean. This is what I mean when I say the conflict can come from all different directions. Sometimes you make it out unscathed, and sometimes it wraps you up. 
And that's why in this series, we've been addressing some issues that we find in everyday life that wrap itself around conflict, that if we could just walk in these things, understand these things, and live these things out as God's word would lead us to live them out, that it would help us navigate relationships all around us and the conflict that we run into. And so, <coughs> sorry, I have bronchitis. <clears throat> yeah, I'm on antibiotics right now. <laughs> Nobody has time for that. So I'm going to be coughing a little bit. But in week, in week one, in week one, we had a conversation around making peace is greater than making a point. What a big thought that is, that the reality is that sometimes it's all about us making our point and getting our point out. We just want to be heard. When God would call us in those times of conflict to look to make peace first, not to make our point first. Last week, we talked about anger. We talked about what it means to be slow to anger, and we gave you some steps as, uh, to walk through and to live out uh, that, that, uh, so that we can navigate conflict when it comes to anger, because the truth is, for some of us, we struggle with anger. And this week, we are going to have a conversation about what I believe to be at the root of many of the struggles that we deal with, not just in conflict, but in other struggles as well. We're going to have a conversation around self-control. Everybody say it with me, self-control. Self-control. We're going to have a conversation around self-control tonight. And how I want to set up this conversation with you and just kind of, kind of have a conversation. Unless, unless you've been hiding under a rock for the last week, perhaps you know that an election took place a week ago today. That's right. An election happened a week ago today. And, uh, and this weekend, if you were at church this weekend, or if you wasn't, I'll just kind of give you a, a little recap. Our, our senior pastor, you know, he, he made a comment, and, and it's a true comment, like a no-duck comment. Obviously, anytime you have an election, there's opinions on both sides and, and people pulling for both sides. And at the end of an election, there's, there's those that, that, uh, that the person they vote for, voted for lost. There's a losing side. And there's on the other side, the, the one that the other people voted for on the winning side. And what we know is, is that the people on the losing side are commiserating and the people on the winning side oftentimes are gloating. In fact, if you've been looking at the news or if you've been watching social media feeds over the last week, it has been madness, the conversations that are being had. Listen, from both sides and both opinions when it comes to the presidential candidacy. And what has shown me is this, is that every side in this has shown at times a lack of self-control. And I'm going to tell you, I want to be honest with you guys just for a minute because I believe that God would call us to be self-controlled. And I want to tell you just for a moment here how I navigate these, these type of conversations and I navigate these type of things in my life. There's commitments that I've, that I've made and I want to show you how I do these as how I have shown self-control. The first is this is that the moment that I heard the results of the election, the first thing I did was I prayed for who the new president would be. And I prayed over Trump, and I prayed over him and what his presidency would be, just like I did over the last eight years for President Obama and just like I did George Bush before him. That I believe that as believers, we're called to pray for the people that are in authority above us, so I pray for my pastor, I pray for our nation leaders, I pray for them all the time. And you know what? It's really hard to be venomous towards people that you're praying for. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I believe that the only hope for this nation is for God to do a miraculous work in our nation. 
And I believe for God to do something in this nation, God needs to do a miraculous work in the leaders of our nation. And so I pray for them. And I pray that God changes Donald Trump's life and wrecks his shop and shows him truth and peace and love and all of these things in a measure that he's never experienced before. And I pray that God brings people around him that can point him to the light and truth of Jesus. And I prayed that for President Obama. And I prayed that for George W. Bush. And I pray this for every president for the rest of the time that I'm alive. Because I think that's the posture of a believer. The second thing that I commit to when it comes to self-control is I commit that I will not post publicly, that social media or otherwise, any of my political opinions or views or any of that that comes out of my emotions. And the reason that I do that is because I want to show self-control. I want to show self-control because I don't want people to take something that I say out of context or misrepresent me and know that I'm a Christian and a believer and a pastor and because of that defame the name of Jesus because I made some emotional post about a political party that I could care less about, to be honest with you, in comparison to who I believe God to be and who I believe his authority to be. But beyond that and bigger than that, I think there's even a bigger picture at stake. See, I believe that God is sovereign, that God has the greatest plan, that God is in control. And I trust God more than I trust any leader of our nation or for that matter, any nation in the world. And so I trust God when he says things in Romans chapter 13 like this. I'll put it on the screen. I'll read it to you. <coughs> God says this. I believe it's on the screen. If not, I'll read it to you. He says this, Romans 13, chapter, one, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. What does that mean? That means that every person must submit to the governing authorities. That we're not trying to be an anarchy. We're not trying to, to you know, overthrow the government. That God has called us to submit to the governing authorities. Why? He's about to tell us why. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Who established the authorities? God did. Who establishes the leaders of the nations around the world? God does. Now listen, I know for some people that's a difficult thing to hear because when you hear something like that, it makes you think, well, so are you saying that God is the one who made Trump president? And I'm here to tell you, based on that scripture, God is the one who makes anybody president. That God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ultimate authority, and his plans will not be thwarted. You say, well, how could God put somebody like this? Or how could God put somebody like this? Listen, listen. Your plans are not God's plans. Your ways are not God's ways. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God's ways are higher than ours. Our understanding is limited to our limited perspective, but God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything, and he's not limited. See, sometimes as Americans, we believe that God's greatest joy would be for us to prosper, but what if it's not? What if God's greatest joy is for us to be broken so that we would turn to him? And in order for us to be broken, our nation may not have to prosper in order for that to happen. Think about the God of the Bible who called out the Israelites, God's people. 
God's people were the Israelites, yet they spent 400 years in slavery under the Egyptian Pharaoh. You say, what in the world? How could God do that to his people? He tells us in Scripture, it says that then God raises up a man named Moses. Moses steps on the scene and he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And Pharaoh, through the plagues that are brought to Egypt, keeps, keeps rejecting this request to set the people of God go from Egypt. And you know what happened? When you read through Scripture, it says this in Romans chapter 9. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his plans and his purposes and his power would be known to the world. We see that the Israelites are taken into captivity later by Babylon because of their disobedience. It was through these instances in Israel's history that actually brought Israel back to God and back to the, their one true love and to worship him as they would worship him. God's greatest joy may not be for our nation to prosper, and it may be, but we don't know. So what do we do and how do we respond? I'll tell you how. We trust him. We trust him. Listen, he goes on in this passage and he says, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever, listen to this, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Man, that's pretty heavy. God's plans are greater than our plans. His ways are higher than our ways. And we have to trust him. What makes this hard is that we're not in control. You are not in control. In fact, there's a lot of things in our life we don't control. We don't control where we're born. We don't control the parents that we have. We don't control the weather. We don't control a lot of things in our life. In fact, I'd illustrate it for you like this just so you can get a visual of it. There is what I would call the circle of concern. <coughs> The circle of concern are all the things that we're concerned about. The things that we're concerned about in this would be things like your grades, things like your family, things like your friends, things like your sports, things like your hobbies, things like the election. All of these things are in the circle of concern, the things that you're concerned about in your life. But there's another circle, and that circle is called the circle of control. And the circle of control sits inside the circle of concern, but the circle of control is always smaller than the circle of concern. In other words, there, of the things that you're concerned about, there's only a small amount, a limited amount of those things that you can actually control. And this is where the conflict comes in. See, the conflict comes in because what we do is, what we do is we start thinking that our control circle is actually bigger than it really is. We start thinking that we can control things that actually we have no control over. And what happens when that happens? We start to get disappointed. We start to get frustrated. We start to say things like, God, why would you let this happen to me? God, why would you let this happen to our nation? God, why would you let this happen to my friend? God, if you were there, you would not have allowed that to happen. And what's happened is, is that we get entitled because we think that we have more control than we actually do. And it leads to entitlement. The other place where conflict rears itself is that we actually think our circle of control is smaller than it actually is. We think it's smaller than it actually is. <coughs> when we do that, what we do is we start saying things like, yeah, 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 but you know what? I couldn't help that. You know what? I'm not responsible for that. You know what? I, 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 I couldn't control that. 
That's not on me. I can't control who I'm attracted to. I can't control, uh, I can't control when I'm in the basement of my boyfriend's house and his mom and dad are out of town and we got the lights off with a movie playing. I can't control myself when I'm with him. Got a little specific there, didn't we? <laughs> Just can't control myself. Let me tell you what happens. When you make the circle smaller, see, when you make it bigger, you're entitled. When you make it smaller, you're a victim. See, when you're a victim, what you say is this. When you're a victim, you say, I'm not responsible, and since I'm not responsible, it's not sin. I'm not responsible, and since I'm not responsible, then you need to lay off me. I'm not responsible, so don't you be coming at me with all that, that you shouldn't be doing that stuff. We make ourselves a victim. And this is where conflict rears its head. You can see this all over the place. I can use any analogy to lay it out to show you how that works, but I think you get the point. And conflict uh, comes in. If you got your Bibles, open to Proverbs chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, it's under your seat. <coughs> Proverbs is right dead, about dead middle of your Bible. Go dead middle. You'll be in Psalms. Go, go back to your left. And, um, and we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. The, the, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible under your chair. And I want to read this verse to you. So good. He says this. Like a city... <clears throat> Excuse me, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Let me read that again. This is the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon, and he says this, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Now listen, you got to understand the context of what he's talking about here. During this day, your primary defense for the city that you lived in was the durability and the size of the walls that were built around your city. The walls around your city was what kept the enemy out. It is what protected you. In fact, we see this uh, earlier in Scripture when Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. And the first city that they come to that they have to overtake is the city of Jericho. And what do we know about the city of Jericho? The city of Jericho had these massive fortified walls around it. And the Israelites and the people of God could not penetrate the walls that were around the city of Jericho. And Joshua cried out to God, and God gave Joshua a game plan. And he tells Joshua to march around the city for seven days. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. On the last day, march around it seven times, blow a trumpet, uh, trumpets, loud, let out a loud shout, and when you do, the walls will come down. And this is what they did, and the walls of Jericho fell down, and the Israelites were able to overtake the city of Jericho. What was the reason why they were able to overtake the city of Jericho? It was because their walls came down. And what Solomon is saying here is this, is that self-control is the walls around your life. And when you lack self-control, you are like a city whose walls have fallen down. You have made yourself vulnerable to the attack of others and to the attack of the enemy. And we have a real enemy out there that wants to destroy us. This is the picture that we get in Scripture of self-control. And if you're taking notes, you can write this uh, in there. Here's a thought about self-control. You can't control others but you can control yourself. I can't control others. I can be concerned about them, but I can't control them, but I can control myself. How are you doing, students, with self-control? Do you let the emotional intensity of the moments of your life drive you to make the decisions that you make? 
When someone attacks you, is your first, your first response to attack back or is it to be self-controlled? That's tough, isn't it? It's tough when someone attacks you to not try to attack back. Guys, when a girl walks by and she's wearing, you know, her clothes all tight and stuff's all hanging out everywhere, you know what I'm saying? Are you self, you know what I'm saying? As <laughs> the girl said, gross. <laughs> do, you, do you have self-control and look the other way? Or do you undress her with your eyes or maybe make a comment to her or about her or to your friends? Self-control. When you're tempted with lust and you know the temptation is strong, do you take your phone or the internet or whatever you can get access on and do you get that away from you? Or do you go and start exploring, looking at your pictures and videos and all the things that you would look at that would rev that up in you? See, here's the truth. That's a self-control issue. Now, let me say this. I don't think that anyone has the power in themselves to overcome sin. That would go against what the Bible says, that God is the one who gives us the power to overcome sin. But this is what I want you to hear. The Bible tells us that greater is he, talking about God, that is in you than he that is in the world. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in him, God's power already rests in you. That means that you already have the strength to overcome. So when you are practicing self-control, it is because God has given you the strength to overcome. When you don't practice it, it is that God has given you the strength to overcome. You've just chosen to not overcome it. God's given you the strength if you're a believer. You're just choosing not to exercise the strength. You're choosing not to tap into it. That's self-control. And as you can see, self-control can take all kinds of forms and, and, and can and, uh, you know, and can, and, and hit us in all different kinds of ways. And the reality is that this is serious to God. In fact, I think it's fascinating that in Scripture, in Titus chapter 2, the Bible gives a list of the things that, that young, uh, that, that young uh, women are supposed to learn from older women. So it says, older women, teach the younger women too. And he gives a whole list of things for them to learn. And he says, older men, conduct yourself in this way. And he gives a list for ways that older men should conduct themselves as followers of Jesus. And he says, older women, here's a list of things in the way you should conduct yourself. But then it says this in Titus chapter 2, verses 6. It says this, similarly encourage young men to be self-controlled. He gives a whole list for every category of people. When he gets to young men, he's like, listen, young men, listen. You need to win self-control. This is your biggest issue. If you don't win anything else and you're in whole entire young man life, win this. This is what God would desire for you to win. See, self-control would be you're sitting here and somebody's preaching, open up God's word, and you're not staring at your phone every time it buzzes because you got self-control and that person can wait 20 minutes for you to, you know, learn about God's word. Self-control isn't you playing with your buddies and talking and all this kind of stuff in the middle of me talking like a couple people are on this side of the room right now. That's self-control. It just got real again. When it comes to this conversation on self-control, I want to give you some relational boundaries to set for yourself. I want to give you relational boundaries to set for yourself, and I promise you that these things will help you. I promise you these things will guide you. I promise you these things will not let you down because these are things that I have myself jumped into 
in order to navigate these things. And let me say this. I'm not up here going, hey, look at me. I'm the model for self-control. I'm up here saying, look, man, I've had to struggle through, and I still struggle through at times, this issue. The self-control isn't easy for anyone. It's a battle. It's tough. In fact, there was a study done. There was a study done uh, by the University of Pennsylvania. They, they surveyed 2 million people. And in the survey of 2 million people, they, they asked them to rank 24 different characteristics that they, they felt like they were strongest in to weakest in. The end of the study showed that the very last slot thing, the number 24th ranked thing that people ranked their strength in was self-control. That was the very bottom of all the qualities of the 2 million people that they did this study on. So it's hard. This is not easy. But as we grow in godliness and we grow in who it means to be a Christian and a follower of God, this is, these are the areas that God would say, you need to focus in. You need to lock in. You need to lock in on making a piece of or making a point. You need to lock in on being slow to anger. You need to lock in on this conversation about conflict because the world is looking at how you manage and deal with conflict and they are judging Jesus and they're judging Christianity based on how you react and how you respond. So here's, here's boundaries. The first boundary is this. <coughs> it's the prayer boundary. It's the prayer boundary. The first thing I do when conflict comes my way is I pray. Some of you guys might think this is even a joke, but this is so true. I'll be in the middle of an argument, and I'll be praying in the argument. I'll be in an argument with my wife, and she'll be talking to me, you know, because I did something stupid. <laughs> and uh, she's, you know, coming at me with whatever. And while she's talking to me, I'm going, God, would you just help her see the light, Lord? No, I'm just kidding. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, God, you know, I'm like, God, would you be in this conversation? I'm literally just praying, like, like to myself, God, would you be in this conversation? God, would you help me not to say anything more stupid than I've already said? God, would you help me to navigate this? And I literally pray as I'm going through this. And I call this the prayer boundary. And the reason I do this is because I've noticed this to be true about your generation, maybe more than any other people group, although I think other generations struggle with it. And I want you to consider this question. Where is the first place you go when you experience conflict in your life. And this is why I say that. Is the first place you go when you're dealing with conflict in your life to a friend? Is it to social media to express your emotions for everyone to empathize with you? Is it to a leader, a spiritual leader, a mentor even? I'm going to submit to you this, that I think the most important place for you to go first is God. So anytime I'm dealing with a heavy situation or conflict, I go to prayer first. It's why oftentimes, and some of you have experienced this with me before, students will come in and they're having a bad day or having a tough time or some heavy stuff's going on in their life. And the truth is we deal with heavy stuff in our life and they're crying their eyes out <coughs> and they're talking to a leader out in the lobby. And as they're talking to the leader, they'll say things like, you know, uh, the, the service will start and I'll actually go up to the leader and to the student. And I'll say, listen. I think the most important thing for you to do right now is to go into the service, to worship God and to pray and ask him to meet you where you're at right now. And then after the service, the leader will talk to you. And here's why I say that. Because there's something about when you go to God, that God the Holy Spirit begins to do business with you. It begins to open up your ears and open up your eyes to see the truth of the situation. 
so that when a spiritual leader like an adult leader or a pastor comes into the conversation and shares with you, you now have ears to hear and eyes to see the godly wisdom that is being brought into the conversation. But oftentimes, we go straight to a friend. It's like, can you believe she did this to me? Can you believe this happened? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe that. And then it starts going back and forth, and and it hits back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And all it's doing is inciting you more and more and more and exciting that other person more and more and more. Have you ever seen that happen before? That leads us to the second one. You need to set emotion boundaries. Emotion boundaries. Here's why you need to set emotion boundaries. Because emotions are contagious, just like the conversation I just had. They're contagious. They're contagious like a yawn, right? Like y'all know yawns are contagious. In fact, there's a video experiment done where they told people that they were going to come in and have the opportunity to be a part of a burger taste test. But actually what they did is they have the guy, actually he'll be on the right side of the screen, that his job was to yawn, fake yawn, to try to make the other people yawn. And this is what they found. Check it out. Oh, yeah. Girl, where they at? I wonder if she's getting them from multiple places or if it's all from one place. I'm like, I haven't done stand-up enough to be really good at it. <sighs> you need some coffee or some rambles. I need, uh... Gotta reserve that energy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Is that not funny? That's so good. Yawns are contagious. And listen, emotions are contagious too. Going back to the election conversation, what happens is someone spews something on social media. And then someone who disagrees with them goes in and they chime in. Because they're passionate about the emotional thing that they're dealing with too. And then someone who disagrees with them comes in and says something. And then someone who agrees with them says something. (coughs) And the emotions begin to build. And they have this chain reaction to one another. And I want to challenge you to set emotional boundaries. That I believe that it's important for us to empathize with people when they're struggling and when they're dealing with stuff. But there is a line and a boundary that you must set. Just because someone else is sad doesn't mean that It's going to make me sad. Or when people are upset and angry, it doesn't mean that I got to be upset and angry. Actually, sometimes the best thing you can do for your friend is not be angry with them because someone hurt their feelings, but actually to come into the situation and say, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. But you know what? I love you and I care about you and point in the truth and point in the love versus inciting more anger in them because you're like, well, I got your back, girl. Shoot, let's go. Let's take her out right now. You know what I'm saying? You know? Just got real again. Just got real again. Listen, listen. Emotions, your emotions are one of those things that you get to choose. You get to choose how you respond in situations, and you get to choose how you incite other people with the way that you react to certain situations. And I want to challenge you to be self-controlled in that. The last one is this, the criticism boundary. The criticism boundary is the fact that all of us in this room are going to experience criticisms in our life. How many of you have been criticized before? All of us, except for the liars whose hands are down, (laughs) right? Like we've all been criticized before. And listen, 
When I hear criticism, what I do is I take that before God and I, and I have a conversation and I allow God to sift out what is true and what is not true in that criticism. Here's the deal. All criticisms are not created equal. But it matters who gives me the criticism. If it's someone I love and respect, if it's someone who I know cares about me and has my greater interest in mind, I'm going to listen to that criticism. Like if you're a girl in the room and you've got four or five amazing, godly, incredible friends who love you with all their heart, and they tell you that the guy you're trying to date is a moron, You should listen. <laughs> now, if you got a scandalous friend and she's telling you, maybe you'd be a little bit more hesitant. The source matters of where the criticism comes from. And you sift that criticism out. Listen, this is what it means to be teachable. That I grow and I learn in my life and in my leadership and in my marriage and all these things based on the criticisms that I get from people that care about me. When my wife comes to me and she gives me a criticism about something I need to grow in and work on, my reaction to that can be defensive and put up my walls, or my reaction can be, you know what, baby, I love you so much, and I want our marriage to be the best it can possibly be. I'm going to work on that area of my life, and I'm going to take that criticism to heart, and I'm going to bring it before the Lord, and I'm going to allow God to begin to work that out in me so that I can grow. That's how you respond. Do I do that perfect every time? Nope. <laughs> but that's how you do it. The criticism can be good, but why do I have this conversation and, and, and what's the point of this as it comes to self-control? One of the things I know is that I know God loves me and that's enough for me. So I don't hang on to those criticisms and let them define me to where I then begin to start thinking of myself as a horrible person. I see too many people who they have situations they can't control and people they can't control that say things to them and they think smaller of themselves and what they can control than they, than they think of and they don't see themselves in the way that God sees them. And they begin to get emotionally defeated in their life because they cannot handle the fact that someone doesn't like them or because they've been receiving criticisms and it may not even be a valid criticism, but they believed it to be true. And you need to know what God says about you. And you need to be self-controlled in this situation of the things that you let in and the things that you let out and the things that, that you allow to affect you. Because everything shouldn't affect you the same way. And everything that people say to you shouldn't affect you in the same way. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you with that. I think you need to set some boundaries in your life. All of us do. We need to set prayer boundaries in our life that the first source that we go to is God before anybody else. I think that as believers, we should set a emotional boundaries. That we want to be emotionally healthy people. And we want to set emotional boundaries so we don't get wrapped up, so that we don't keep egging on and incite the things that are happening that I think that if anybody should be bringing peace and love and joy and kindness and unity to this nation, it should be the people that are in this room and the people in churches all over Gwinnett County and all over our nation who love Jesus and want to follow what he says and want to be like him and want to live like him. And we have to be healthy ourselves and also setting up a criticism boundary 
and understanding the one that affects you the most. And so I want to challenge you with that tonight. Which one of those affects you the most? Which one of those over the next couple of days and over the next week do you need to focus in on? Because I think every one of us needs to focus in on some of those. I'm going to have the band come forward. We're going to close out the night. And as the band comes forward, I want to, I want to share this with you. In Galatians chapter 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit listed. Now, Jesus says you will be known by your fruit. So how do you know that you have a relationship with God? You bear fruit. Just as an apple tree bears apples and an orange tree bears orange, oranges, he would say it'd be weird if, a, if an apple tree bears oranges. If you call yourself a believer and, and you're bearing fruit that does not represent who Christ is, you're probably not a believer. And he says, these are the fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits of those who you know are like me, who you know are with me. And he says this in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Self-control is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. So is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I want to challenge you as you reflect on your own life. Do these things mark you? Is this the fruit that you bear? When people think about you, do they see kindness and love and joy and peace? This is why I think it's so critical for us as believers, as Christians, as those who follow Jesus, to represent this in the schools that we go to, in our homes, in our nation. Because this is what our nation needs. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control.